We are in a series that we have entitled, Empty, This Changes Everything, looking at the last two chapters of the book of John and looking to the life of the disciples and followers of Jesus Christ who went from places of sorrow and shame and second-guessing to become people who would do great things with regards to their faith and service to God. And the pinnacle, or if you will, the pivotal part of their life was changed on that first Easter Sunday when Jesus Christ appeared, resurrected, just as he said that he would. Now the reason why we are doing this series, and this series of course we'll be finishing up next week, uh, it's a short series, but the reason why we did is we wanted to have uh, us as a church and us as people honestly assess who we are as Christians today. I want to ask the question, the fundamental question with regards to the Christian faith and the Christian life, has the empty tomb of Easter changed who we are? What kind of place does that empty tomb and, and the knowledge that Christ has risen from the grave, how has that changed us? How has it allowed us to leave uh, the depths of our doubts and disbeliefs and turned it into a heartfelt devotion to Christ that is used to change the world for him. I hope that you're asking that question. I hope that this empty tomb is not just a story, a nice way to end a, a pretty bad story where Jesus Christ is arrested and crucified, but, but good news at the end of this made-up story is that he uh, rises from the grave and everybody lives happily ever after. My friends, if it were not for the resurrection... The Bible tells us, in fact, Paul tells us that we would be pitied amongst all people because we would have no hope. I hope and I pray that the hope and the foundation of who you are as a believer hinges on the truth that Jesus Christ has been been raised just as he said that he would. It changed the life of those first followers of Christ that first Easter, and we will see that it will once again change our lives as well. Well, today we talk on the subject of second-guessing. We come to the text, a very famous passage of Scripture, speaking of a man named Thomas. Thomas is known as one who doubts. And if we were honest with who we are today, all of us would say at one time or another, doubt has plagued our life even as believers. Now, usually doubt comes on the heels of another issue or another problem that begins to raise questions in our hearts and minds. Doubt is the sentiment that asks the questions, why or how? Doubt leads us to a litany of unanswered questions that leads to concern and fear about tomorrow. It causes us to be unsure about the circumstances and the times that we live in. I'm going to give a longer, uh, if you will, introduction, because I want to lay a foundation, and then we'll get into our text, so I don't want you to begin to have doubts on whether the sermon will ever end, so I'm giving you a heads up right away that we will address some things that I think are very important and then get into our text. But before I do, let me open our time with a word of prayer. Father God, we come before you, Lord, and we thank you for the opportunity to worship you, the opportunity to lift your name high in song. Uh, to pray, uh, to seek uh, out our friends and our family here at Village Bible Church, to love on them and to uh, speak to them in our times of fellowship. Lord, it is so good to be in your house this morning. Now, Lord, as we turn our attention to your word, I pray that we would glean the truths that you have for us this morning. Lord, we live in a world 
that strikes to that that, that seeks to strike um, doubt out in our lives to look at us as believers and the claims of your you our Savior and cause us to begin to second guess what we know of who you are and what you've done. Lord, we look today to the life of Thomas, one who followed you, one who uh, listened to your words, one who saw your miracles, and then, Lord, when you were put on a cross, just like the rest, he deserted. Just like the rest, he was fearful and bewildered by the events that had transpired. But, Lord, we're going to learn, even though he went far, far down the road of doubt, All of that was taken away when you stood before him and you showed him your hands and you showed him your side and you showed him that you truly were alive. Father, I pray whatever doubts we may have in our minds, whatever concerns that we may have in our hearts, that just like Thomas, we would be able to see you right before us, that we would see you in all of your glory, we would see you in all of the promises that you've fulfilled, and that because of that, because of our encounter with you, that we would be able to walk away today knowing there is an answer to our doubts, knowing there is an answer to our concerns and to our worries, and because of that, that we'll be all the more eager, all the more willing, all the more able to serve you in a greater and more effective way because you have changed our doubts and you've turned them into a devotion that is only for you. Lord, I pray that you would speak through me and that we would have a time of great rejoicing in what you will teach us this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you haven't already, make sure you grab your outline as we look to our text, which we'll get to in a couple moments. If you haven't turned there yet, we'll be in John chapter 20, and we'll start in verses 19 and go through the end of uh, chapter 20 to verse 31. Well, as I said, a long introduction in regards to doubt because there's a lot of misconceptions regarding this emotion or this uh, sense of feeling of being. Uh, Doubt uh, has many times been connected with the idea of disbelief. Doubt and disbelief seem to be synonymous with one another, but I'm here to contend that they're very different. And I want you to uh, write these down just somewhere uh, just to help you remember uh, the difference between doubt and disbelief. Doubt has been defined as an uncertain wavering in belief and conviction. An uncertain wavering in belief and conviction. The idea there is a lack of certainty, Doubt is the idea of a lack of certainty. You look at the Greek word that we have translated into the word doubt, and it gives the picture of being of two minds, of being two minds, double-minded. One sense, on one side of your thoughts or your thinking, you desire to do a particular thing, and, and you're excited about it, and you want to pursue it with all fanfare and gusto. But on the other side, doubt begins to creep in and begins to ask questions, should you do it? And when should you do it? And how should you do it? And is it even anything that you should be a part of? And so the individual who finds himself living with doubt finds himself wavering between two thoughts or two opinions. That's doubt, a desire to do a particular thing, but struggling to see that to fruition because of the concerns or the questions that an individual may have, being of two minds. 
Disbelief is a totally different thing. Disbelief has been defined as the deliberate denial, the deliberate denial and resistance that leads to disobedience and rebellion. Doubt is not always condemned in the scriptures, but disbelief is. The difference between doubt and disbelief is that doubt has a desire to do something, but struggles to do it because of the other side where doubt finds itself evident. Disbelief it has no struggle between the two. It has fallen and landed itself, not just in doubt, but now moving and saying, it's not that I doubt these things, but I don't believe these things, and I will live my life, and I will live out a life of conviction in light of that disbelief instead of doubting and wavering back and forth. Thomas today, the disciple we encounter, is a disciple of doubt, not disbelief. I would think it would be quite hard for anybody to call themselves a follower of Jesus Christ and to live a long life or a long time in the camp of disbelief. But I find it very easy for us as Christians, I find it very easy for myself to live long seasons of life amidst doubts, and living in light of those doubts, and, and, and living and making decisions in light of those doubts, even though I call myself a follower of his. We encounter a text today, John chapter 20, where we see a man who desired to believe the right thing, who wanted to serve his master well, but doubted. He doubted due to the circumstances surrounding him that it did not allow him to move beyond the second guessing of his beliefs. Now the thing that we need to understand about doubts is that doubts can be a strength and they can be a weakness. The Lord allows us to have a mind and and a thought pattern that when someone comes to us and maybe says, hey, you can make a million dollars. In fact, I just got an email this last week from an individual from Africa. And this individual from Africa said that he had come from America to help an orphanage and uh, he had been robbed by gunpoint and he needed uh, to help the orphanage and so all I needed to do was send $100. But little did the orphanage know, which he was going to share with them, that they were under a diamond mine and that they were going to excavate the diamond mine and that because of my giving to him, I would be one of the first millionaires once the diamonds are excavated and are sold. Now, doubt is a strength, right? Because I said, are you kidding me? There's no way that this is true. And the last thing I'm going to do is send my money that way because my head and my heart was filled with doubts. Doubts can be a strength. It can cause us to not fall prey to uh, shysters and, and charlatans who tell us that we can be rich, we can be happy, all of those things where, where God has given us an inevitability to be able to say, I doubt that that's true, therefore I'm not going to fall to the ploys and practices of those who are selling such things. But likewise, on the other side of the coin, doubt can bring a lot of weaknesses, Because where there should be certainty, where there should be conviction, if we live in a season of doubt, if we live a life of doubt, we will find ourselves not standing on solid ground, but always on sinking sand. We will always find ourselves struggling to know where to be people of conviction if doubt pervades our life. And so we have to come to grips with the idea that doubt can be positive, but most times it is negative. Most times it finds itself uh, dealing with doubt, especially when it comes to our faith. 
We want to just throw it all away. We want to be able to say, I don't want to deal with it because we think it's unchristian to doubt. We think that we are sinning as a result of it, but I'm here to tell you that doubts are a part of everyday life. But where do these doubts find themselves in our life? I want to share a couple with you. I want you to write these down even before we get into that first point this morning. And I want to share just a famous word of an author about 500 years ago who said this, give me the benefits of your convictions if you have any, but keep your doubts to yourself for I have far too many of my own to bear. Isn't that true? We've got a lot, we want conviction. We want truth to be articulated to us. But the last thing that we want to do is be able to hear more doubts because it will only add to our circumstances and our struggles in life. And so we need to understand that doubt is a huge part of our life and it's seen in a couple of ways. I want to share five very quickly with you. The first way we see doubts invade our life is in the realm of feelings. You know, feelings more than feelings. Now, how can doubt pervade and and innovate, if you will, uh, the doubts uh, that we have with regards to feelings. Well, if you've ever had an encounter with an individual, whether it was through the dating experience or through uh, just uh, friendship, there are times and, 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 and experiences in life where we meet an individual and everything seems to be fine and, and their friendship seems to be there, but there's just some thoughts, is this person really who they say they are? If you have been involved in any kind of romantic relationship, you know that doubts inevitably will come up as you become more and more serious. Is this the person uh, that uh, the Lord has given me to marry? Is this person really uh, the person I should be spending all this time with? Doubts can involve ourselves with our feelings in regards to relationships. I also see the feelings being played out of doubt when it comes to purchasing things. How many of us have ever bought something and had a feeling of doubt that we call buyer's remorse. I know that uh, a couple different times I've bought things of of some incredible value, cars and and other things, where as soon as I leave, I was all excited about buying the car, and then I leave and say, did I pay too much for it? Is it going to be all that the salesman said it was going to be? Am I going to like it five years from now, or ten years from now when I'm done paying for this thing? Is it something I'm really going to enjoy and be a part of? We have doubts about what we purchase as well with regards to our feelings. But it's not just feelings that it it, it impacts. It impacts our families. If you're a part of a family, you know that doubt invades the life of families because as as a father, as a mother, as, as an individual in a family, doubt and questions can come up. There are some here today who are doubting the viability of their marriage today because of the circumstances and maybe because of some of the conflict that's going on. You're saying, I, I, I was really sure about where I was at uh, on my wedding day, but i got to be honest with you, 10 years into it, I'm not quite sure that we're going to make it till death do us part. And if we do make it to death do us part, it'll be because one of us will kill the other. That's the only thing I'm sure of. Some of you parents right now are, are wondering, especially maybe with young children, Are my children going to be good students? Are they going to be good and useful parts of humankind? Or are they going to struggle? Are they going to be able to find the life that they're looking for, the life that we as parents are trying to lead them to? Some of you as parents of teenagers and of college-age students, you send them off to school, and you have doubts. Will they make the right decisions? 
Will they, when all the peer pressure and all of the temptation is before them, will our young person, will my son or my daughter make the decisions that glorify God and protect them for years to come? Some of you here in a couple months will take your graduates and you will drop them off at a university and there will be many doubts on whether or not that's a good investment or not because all your son or daughter is talking about is the friendships and all of the activities and here you're pouring all this kind of money out for them to get an education and there's doubts. There's doubts. Will they find the right person to marry? Will they find the right job? Will they ever get out of my house? Doubt after doubt with regards to our families. How about the future? The future is one that I think almost all of us find ourselves prone to fall into. Doubts about the future and who can blame us. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. We don't know if tomorrow will be a good day or a bad day. We don't know if tomorrow will be the time where we are given the greatest news that we could have ever imagined or that calamity and tribulation will befall us and our lives will never be the same due to the issue that has come into our lives, inevitably ruining all that we've lived up to so far. We have questions on, will it be filled with joy and happiness or more of the same? I gotta be honest with you, if there's an area that I doubt most, it is with regards to the future. Future decisions that I need to make, future abilities to do things that I have planned or put as goals to attain to. As a businessman, it's difficult to wonder, will business the next quarter be as good or as bad as the quarter before? What will happen if this issue comes up? And I will tell you, for me, doubt happens at three in the morning. I never think about these issues. I never am concerned about these things when I'm standing up. But lo and behold, if I wake up in the middle of the night, all kinds of thoughts of what if and what will I do when this happens begins to flood my mind. Doubt about the future is something we all seem to struggle with. How about finances in this time of recession? Who can blame us? Who doesn't have doubts about layoffs? Who doesn't have doubts about whether they'll be in their job a week from now? Who doesn't have questions or thoughts that that, will my job pay the same amount today and tomorrow as it did a year ago? We have doubts about whether we'll be in our homes or not as a result of the issues that we're facing in this recession. Will we be able to take care of the needs of our family and the things that the Lord has laid before us? Doubts about money and finances As big as these are, the greatest area that we struggle with with regards to doubt and the most important one has to do with our faith. It has to do with our faith. Now you say, Tim, as a Christian, we're not to doubt about our faith. We are to be secure. We are to know without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is all that he says he is, that this word, the Bible, is all that it says it is and everything that it contains is truth. We are not to doubt these things, and we are not to worry about these things, but i got to be honest with you, as a preacher and as a follower of Jesus Christ for most of my life, I've got to tell you that none of those things are slam dunks in my mind. And the reason why I say that is not to tell you that I sit here uh, wavering whether or not Christianity is right or not. I believe that to be true in my heart and my mind, but the human nature, in fact, the sinful nature, always is begging the question, is it really true? Does, really, does God really care for you? Is there really a heaven and a hell? And if there is, is it really true that a good God, a loving God, would send people to hell on the issue of their sin and not just save every one of us? 
I mean, those are questions that I think about. And that makes me have to go back to God's word and put my trust in God's word and say, Lord, I have doubts because I've never been to the afterlife. I've never been able to talk to anyone there. And so I wonder. But this is where we have to turn to the word of God. I take some solace that many of the greats of the faith struggled with doubt. Luther and Calvin, the great reformers, had doubts regarding their faith. How could they? They were great theologians. But as you read some of their writing, no doubt they were struggling with the questions of faith in Christ. Preachers like D.L. Moody from Chicago, Charles Spurgeon of London, both struggled with doubts regarding their fear and their ministry. Even the great missionary, David Livingston, who would do great things for the Lord and great ministry opportunities to the far-flung places of the world, went through a season of doubt where he was ready to give up the faith and head back for home. We're not immune to the issue of doubt. We doubt the promises and precepts of God. We doubt the love of God. We doubt the salvation that God gives. We doubt And because of this doubt, we are open targets for the world to attack. You see, the world doesn't doubt the claims of Jesus Christ. The world doesn't believe them. And so what they want to do is they know it's going to be hard for a believer to go from uh, a believer in Christ to being one who doesn't believe in Christ. And so what they want to do and what I believe the devil in his system of, of, of world affairs wants to do is bring us to a place of doubt. Because if we can live in a place of doubt, then we will waver. And the person that wavers finds themselves not being true to their faith. A person that wavers isn't going to speak honestly and openly the convictions regarding God's word and his son, Jesus Christ. And so if we can get them to doubt, then they will be found to be ineffective and powerless to proclaim it. How is one to defend against such an attack? Listen to this true story from a high school science class. As Tom was sitting in his high school science class, he heard the words resonate in his ears. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is nothing but a myth. Tom's high school science teacher announced to his class just a few days before the Easter break. Jesus not only didn't rise from the grave, but there is no God in heaven who would allow his son to be crucified in the first place. Quietly raising his hand, Tom protested, Sir, I believe in God, and I believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Tom, you can believe whatever you wish to, of course, the teacher said. However, the real world excludes the possibility of miracles like the resurrection. The resurrection is a scientific impossibility. No one who believes in miracles or the raising of the dead can also respect science, which has been proven. Then the teacher proposed an experiment. Reaching into the refrigerator in the class, he produced a raw egg and he held it up. And he said, I'm going to drop this egg on the floor. Now we know because of science that gravity will pull it towards the floor and that the egg will most certainly break apart. Looking at Tom with a challenge, the teacher said, now Tom, I want you to pray a prayer right now and ask your God to keep this egg from breaking when it hits the floor. If he can do that, then you have proven your point and I'll have to admit that there's a God. What was Tom going to do? After pondering for a moment, Tom slowly stood up to pray. Dear 
Heavenly Father, Tom prayed. I pray that when my teacher drops the egg, it will break into a hundred pieces. And also, Lord, I pray that when the egg does break, that my teacher will have a heart attack and die. Amen. After, just as you have helped so aptly to do, after a unison of gasps, the class sat in silent expectation. For a moment, the teacher did nothing. He looked at Tom. He looked at the egg. He looked back at Tom. He looked at the egg. And then he looked to the sky. Then he took the egg and put it back into the refrigerator and simply said, class, dismissed. And then went and sat down and cleared his desk. We many times are brought with the question of whether or not we believe in God. This teacher believed more about God than many Christians do today. True story, St. Louis Dispatch newspaper from about two years ago. An amazing story about when we are filled with doubt, how we can respond. If we're going to be able to do that, we need to be able to find victory in our times of second guessing. And to do that, we've got to explore the life of a disciple who doubted. And so if you haven't already, turn to John 20. That concludes this long introduction in regards to doubt. And now we need to get into the text and understand what God has to say about these doubts that we have. I want you, if you will, just for a moment, go ahead and stand with me as we read this text, and then we'll get right into our outline. This is what the text says in verse 19. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Verse 24 in our text for the morning. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Go ahead and be seated. If we want to stop our second-guessing this morning, then the first thing we need to do is we must involve ourselves in developing a relationship with a disciple who doubted. We have to learn a little bit about this man named Thomas. 
And in developing a relationship with this man, we're going to learn some things. Now, as soon as we talk about Thomas, we learn uh, very quickly that he's a famous fellow. When we talk about Thomas, we talk about uh, him doing what? What did he do? He doubted. And therefore, when someone doubts, we call them a what? Doubting Thomas. You get an A-plus for the class. A doubting Thomas. Now, if that's all we know about Thomas, then we fail to get the whole picture. Because sadly, this man's mistake, this man's greatest spotlight is put on a place of failure and struggle instead of the rest of his life that is seen to have done some pretty amazing things for his God and his Savior. Now, we need to know a couple things about this man, and so we need to build a picture. First of all, it is most likely known that Thomas was a twin. Notice in our text, it tells us in verse 24, now Thomas called Didymus. Didymus in Greek literally is a twin. And so we don't know who his other twin may have been. We don't know that, in fact, he was a twin or not because we're never told of it for sure. But for whatever reason, his name is Twin. And so we're going to assume that he has a twin somewhere as a brother or a sister that that he was born with. Now, the other thing we need to know is that looking at Scripture, we can learn a little bit about Thomas's personality. And the best way to illustrate Thomas's personality is to remember the children's uh, books and videos of Winnie the Pooh. Winnie the Pooh had a friend. His friend was a donkey. You remember donkey the donkey? His name was Eeyore. You remember Eeyore? And Eeyore was never happy. Eeyore was always pessimistic. Eeyore always found himself with the the sentiment of everything being half empty. While Tigger and and, uh, Piglet and all the others seemed to be excited about the prospect of this thing or that, it was always Eeyore who would just try to bring a little rationale into the situation. And some of you are like that. Some of you are married to a Thomas or an Eeyore. And it drives you absolutely up the wall. You say, what a beautiful day it is. And your spouse or the person in your home says, no, it's not. There's clouds in the sky. I always get upset with my wife when she tells me that it's 84 degrees out and she'll say, she's cold. And I'll say, how warm does it, need, does it need to be for you to be warm? And she says, 85 would be nice. As if a degree will change it from one way or another. We find ourselves with an Eeyore-type figure, a pessimist, one who struggles to see the bright side of things. Now, notice a couple more things that the Scriptures tell us about it. In our outline, we see he was probably a fisherman. Turn to John chapter 21, where we'll be at next week, and notice what it says in verses 1 through 3. Afterward, this is after the experience with Thomas, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and other, two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out, got into a boat, But that night, they caught nothing. From what we understand from historians and scholars, it seems that like many of the other disciples, Thomas was one who had a job of being a fisherman. If not, at minimum, he enjoyed the sport of fishing and went with Simon to do that. Now, notice the other thing that we see. Not only was he a fisherman, but he also was a follower of Jesus Christ. 
In Luke 6, 13 through 16, our text tells us something more about uh, Thomas. In chapter 6 of Luke, it says the following, in verses 13 through 16. When morning came, he called his disciples to him, and he chose 12 of them, which he designated as apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was the zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became the traitor. Thomas is one of the 12, one of the 12 that would become Jesus' closest friends, Jesus' most devoted students, and followers. Thomas is one who would see all of Jesus' miracles. He would hear all of Jesus' sermons. He would see Jesus not only in how he interacts in public, but also in private. Thomas had a front row view of Jesus Christ and all that he was a part of. He was a follower of Jesus Christ. He was privy to all that Christ allowed him to know about himself. But he wasn't just some casual follower of Christ. In fact, we learn that he was devoted even unto death. John 11 tells us about a situation that happens. We learn that Jesus' friend Lazarus is sick. And then we learn that he passes away. Jesus says, we're going to go to Bethany. And we're going to go and visit the family and visit uh, Lazarus. Jesus says, we're going to go wake him up, even though he's dead. And the response is, Jesus, you can't do that. Don't you know the chief priests? Don't you know the Pharisees? Don't you know that the authorities want to kill you? And if we go there, they'll most definitely stone you. And what Thomas says is quite revealing. He says, that's all right. Let's go so we may die with him also. Thomas is so devoted and so willing to go to whatever depths he needs to for the sake of Jesus. He's willing to give up his own life even if it means he would be stoned to death. Now this is true of Thomas even outside of what the scriptures tell us about him. History tells us that Thomas, after the ascension of Jesus Christ, would head out to the Middle East and begin to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. In fact, in A.D. 52, 20 years after Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and then ascension into heaven, Thomas would head out for a 20-year missions ministry where he would focus a great deal of time on the nation of India. And he would impact that nation in a way that had never been done before. For 20 years, he would proclaim the good news of his Savior. This is what some historians say about Thomas. He who so fervently proclaimed his doubt in the resurrection now carried the message of Christ, of hope, love, and forgiveness to the ends of the earth in his generation. Speaking of the people in the times that he preached to, it says that Thomas went to a land of dark people where Christ had sent him. They were not only dark in skin, but dark as a result of sin. But Thomas went to India to clothe them with salvation and baptizing them in white robes. Through his miracles and graceful message, he would dispel India's painful darkness of sin. It was his message to marry the East with Jesus, the one and only begotten of God. Now, he would do this for 20 years until history tells us in A.D. 72, a Brahm uh, prophet and priest would... uh, incite a riot against Thomas. They would throw him into a pit, leaving him for dead, but because he does not die in the time frame that they want him to, they lift him out of the pit. 
They ask him to denounce the person and work of Jesus Christ, and when he does not, they take a sword and they stab him to death. I'm willing to go to the grave for you, Jesus. And just like many of the other martyrs, the disciples would become, Thomas is one who is devoted even unto death as he preaches and proclaims Jesus Christ. Notice the final thing that we see regarding this man is that he was focused on finding answers. In John 14, a very famous passage of scripture, Jesus is speaking to his disciples just prior to his um, uh, betrayal and uh, subsequent arrest. And in John 14, Jesus is comforting his disciples. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me, in verse 1 it says. In my Father's house are many rooms, and if it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may also be where I am. I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Let's stop there for a moment. Jesus is talking again, and, and Jesus, half the time Jesus talks, the disciples don't get it, but they never want to play off on that. You know, you've been a part of a conversation like that. Do you understand what I'm talking about? Yeah, I totally understand. I'm with you. And I wonder if the disciples are sitting around Jesus, and Jesus is saying, you know where the place I'm going, and the disciples are going, uh-huh, yep. Hey, James, do you know where he's going? I don't have a clue. Yep, mm-hmm. we know where you're going. Now notice what Thomas says in verse 5. Thomas speaks up. It's not Peter. It's not James. It's not John. But Thomas says, he goes, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? Thomas wants to know. So he says, I don't want to miss out on this. And so if you've got the answer, I want the answer. I want to know where you're talking about going. And these yahoos over here are pretending that they know where you're going but they don't know, and I don't know for sure, so I need to ask, where are you going? And where can we find you when the time is right? Thomas wants to know. He wants to find the answer. Now, putting all of this together, we're able to get a better picture about the scriptures with regards to Thomas. He's far more than just a doubting man. He's a man who would do great and amazing things, but his greatest mistake would become his claim to fame. How would you like it if your worst day was the day that everybody would remember? It's the day that would be put on Wikipedia for all of ages to see. Well, Tim, yeah, he did a lot of things, but boy, he really blew it on this one day. That's the life of Thomas. Now, what causes him to doubt? What brings him to this place? We have to observe the second point, and that is, if we don't want to fall prey to the same things that Thomas does, we need to involve ourselves in defending against the risks Defending against the risks surrounding the downward spiral of doubt. It's a mouthful. Try to do that seven times fast. Defending against the risks surrounding the downward spiral of doubt. Thomas does not just find himself doubting the resurrection right away. But there's a a process that he goes through where he finds himself falling farther and farther into the abyss of doubt. And I think we fall into it as well. The first one has to do with, and found in verse 19, the issue of desertion. He runs into the issue of doubt because he, like the rest of the disciples, uh, desert Jesus Christ. What caused Peter, what caused James, what caused all of the disciples minus John to run away from Jesus, to run for their lives? The answer is doubt. 
Yes, it was fear, but if they had really believed that Jesus was all that he said he was, if they didn't doubt that he was the Son of God, the one who could perform miracles, the one who could call legions of angels down to protect him, then they would have had no question or any concern about Jesus being arrested, about Jesus being put on the cross, because they would have believed, hey, this is what Jesus meant when he said, I'll tear down the temple, and in three days I'll rebuild it. But they doubted, and their doubts led to fear, and their fear led to desertion. And so Thomas, just like the rest of them, find themselves deserting the faith because of their doubts, which produced fear. As a result of that, he misses out on an incredible blessing. Now, what caused those doubts? Doubts are found when we find ourselves in disappointing situations, situations and places that lead us to be filled with despair. They became disappointed. Jesus isn't who he said he was. He said he was all these great things. He said he was going to build his kingdom. Now it hasn't happened. And then the despair came in when they said, well, if he's not going to do that, then we're sunk. And we're in trouble. And that's what causes them to be behind locked doors. And so we see that they've all deserted him. But the scripture tells us that Thomas isn't there the first time Jesus comes in. We don't know where Thomas is at. We don't know if he's out getting groceries. We don't know if he's out sulking. It does not tell us. But I will tell you, I think there's of great importance for us to be reminded how important it is for us to be together with our brothers and sisters as Christ as much as humanly possible. Because Thomas misses out on an encounter with Jesus because he's not present. And I think there's a lot of us who, for a myriad of reasons, miss out on the public assembly of Christians together here at Village Bible Church, and you're gone, and you miss out on what God is going to do, an encounter with Jesus Christ. And you say, well, that's okay. I'll pick it up on Facebook. I'll pick it up through the email blast and the prayer updates. You cannot encounter Jesus without the community of believers around you in that public setting through Facebook and all of those other mechanisms. Those are tools but they do not substitute your need to be here with the people of God. Thomas misses out on something huge. Now, I want you to notice that he misses out on an opportunity. Now, notice there's a delay. Seven days goes by. Seven days, Jesus has appeared the Sunday, of Easter, the Sunday night of Easter Sunday. Seven days goes by, and Thomas is living in a place of doubt because he's not there. Now, notice the delay that takes place. As a result of his absence, he would spend seven days languishing over his doubts. Instead of his issues being resolved right away, like the rest of the disciples, he would have to wait for that prayer to be answered. And he misses out on an important opportunity. As a result, he finds himself being able to not get beyond his doubt. Notice that the good word of those in attendance will not suffice. Notice what the text says. It says, in regards to Thomas, he comes in, and the other disciples say to him, verse 25, we have seen the Lord, but he says to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails are, I'm not going to believe. Sometimes, if we are going to have our doubts dismissed, someone just can't speak it into us. He didn't believe. He had too many doubts. He needed to see it for himself. We cannot live on the leftovers of someone else. Many times our doubts will lead us to have to see for ourselves. Thomas is unable to do that, and as a result of that, it's a delay. 
Notice the denial that takes place. As the disciples come and they say to Thomas, hey, we've seen him. He's appeared before us. What an incredible testimony. All of these guys in one voice say, we have seen the Lord. His response is, I won't believe. I won't believe. Now this shows us how far Thomas has gone in his doubt and disbelief. How far he's gone in his second guessing. He will, not, uh, he will not admit to the idea that the other disciples are correct. And for seven days, think about it, sitting in that room and everybody saying, it was amazing to see Jesus and, and we saw him. He appeared even though the doors were locked. He came before us. What an amazing thing. He talked with us. He ate with us. What an awesome thing. And Thomas, no, I don't believe it. And then Andrew comes over and says, man, you couldn't believe it, man. I sat next to Jesus. I even bumped into him, and he has real flesh and and everything, and and I won't believe. And then John comes over. It was awesome, man. We played football with Jesus in the upper room. We did all of this cool stuff, man. It was great. And Thomas says again, I won't believe. Denial after denial. But notice why the denial comes. It leads to a demand. Verse 25, notice what he says, unless, that's an important word there, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hands into his side, I will not believe. What Thomas is saying, and I think it's where some of us are at today, Jesus, here's my criteria if you want me to believe. I need this, 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 and this. And if you do these things, then I'll I'll take a new fresh look at who you are and what you say you're all about. Some of us have put lists together saying that we'll believe, we'll serve God, we'll do what God wants us to do if only God will do this, that, and the other thing. Here, Lord, are the hurdles that you have to cross. I'm going to tell you that's not a good idea. It's never good to boss around God. It's never good to tell God that you're not going to do something until he does something for you. This is where Thomas finds himself totally off track. It becomes clear and evident that his doubts are leading every part of who he is instead of pursuing the glory of Christ and the risen Savior. Where are you today in your doubt? Are you at a place of desertion? You maybe don't agree or don't don't believe everything that that we talk about and proclaim here at church and you just say, you know, I I can't believe it. I'm just going to go do my own thing. As a result of that, does it cause delay? Do you find yourself denying certain things? Do you find yourself demanding that God do things in your doubt that will only then allow you to believe? How are we to get beyond such a demise? How are we to move beyond the slippery slope that leads us to disbelief? To move to devotion. How are we to get there? It involves deepening our resolve. Deepening our resolve to disarm the doubts of life. Jesus shows up. I'm so glad he does. And he comes in response to such blatant doubts regarding what he's done. Think for a moment, Jesus watching what Thomas is saying. I won't believe, I won't believe until I see Jesus, until I touch Jesus. And just the affront that must have been to Jesus Christ. Jesus is like, what what do I got to do to make this guy happy? I appeared to all his friends. I appeared to Mary. I've appeared to the guys on the road to Emmaus. I've shown myself, and he still won't believe. So Jesus again, once again, appears. Verse 26, a week later, his disciples were in the house again. And it says Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came in and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. 
I want you to know, if you want to get beyond your doubts, the first thing you have to do is you have to draw close to Jesus Christ. It involves drawing close to Jesus Christ. Now, that seems like a Sunday school answer, but the only way your doubts about the person and work of Jesus Christ will be resolved is when you get close to him and you take in all that he says he is. And you begin to look at him, you begin to converse with him, you begin to dialogue with him in your conversations, and that is then the only time that that will take place. Now, the important thing that I want you to recognize is that Jesus Christ proves himself to be utterly sovereign and faithful in the response found in verse 27. Notice what he says. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it in my side, stop doubting and believe. Nowhere in the text does anybody say Jesus appeared and Peter speaks up for the rest of them and says, hey, Peter says, hey Jesus, it's good to have you back. We knew you were alive because we saw you last week, but you know what? Oh, Thomas over there, he doesn't believe. No, Jesus comes in and the text says right away he turns to Jesus or turns to Thomas and Jesus says, you want to touch me? Here's my hands. Here's my side. Go ahead. Stick your fingers in there. We see within that that number one, Jesus is omnipresent at all places at all times. And Jesus is omniscient. He knows all things. And right away, even before I think Jesus has to show this, the very essence of Jesus' response to Thomas is one that enables him to know that Jesus is, in fact, who he says he was. Now, notice that when we draw close to God in our times of doubt, notice what the text says. It never says that Thomas gets yelled at. Jesus doesn't come into the room and go, Thomas, get over here. Closer. Right here. Get over right here when I tell you to. That's what parents have to do with kids. And so Thomas inches his way up. Thomas, you dummy. Why didn't you listen to your friends? I appeared to them. What's your problem? Man, you've always been a pessimist. Man, I would say, today is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in you. Oh, I don't know if I can. You always were that way, Thomas. Do you see that in the text? No. He appears to, uh, to Thomas, and he utters the words, peace be with you. When you go to Jesus with your doubts, with your lack of understanding of the future. Jesus doesn't beat you up. Jesus doesn't mock you, you stupid, you ignorant fool. What he does is he responds with peace. Jesus wants to bring you peace amidst your questions. He wants to bring you peace amidst your struggles of doubt. Now notice, the next thing we need to do in drawing close to Christ is that we have to depend on the demonstrations given to us. We need to depend on the demonstrations given to us. We see that there's some evidence that Jesus gives. We see, first of all, he gives the full physical resurrection. That means that the grave is empty. That should have been the first thing that should have keyed off Thomas. The tomb is empty. Then the second evidence that Thomas is given is that the disciples saw Jesus. So not only is the tomb empty, which he knew to be true, but now he knows that all of his closest friends have seen Jesus. And that's not good enough. And so Jesus now appears to him, and it seems to be enough then by showing him his hands and his side. It is the third demonstration of Christ's resurrection to his disciples. Now, what Thomas does is he goes all the farther to have to believe that and understand that to be true. But how about us? 
it is probably a good chance, a good bet, that Jesus isn't going to appear before us because the scripture says the next time we'll see Jesus will be at the, his uh, second coming. And so there's a good chance that we could sit here and we could all pray together, Lord, we have doubts, we want to we go serve you in the world, but until we know that you are who you are, we're just going to hang out here. So we pray that you would appear to us, that you would show yourself to us, and he won't do it. And so what are we left with? We are left with two options. One, to walk away and say, Jesus didn't appear to us, so I give up. Or to look at the demonstrations that Jesus has already given to us. First of all, he's given us his word. What does his word say? That Jesus Christ was crucified. And on the third day, he rose again, just as the scriptures proclaimed. We believe it. Or do we? The next thing that Jesus has given us is his Holy Spirit that lives and intercedes and guides the child of God. And so we have his word, a demonstration of who he is. We have a spirit that is living inside of us that bears witness to that fact. And yet we still ask for signs. We still ask for miracles. We still ask for all of these things because we have doubts. Depend on what Christ has already given us. Don't seek signs. Don't seek wonders. Don't seek claims of people who say that they've been caught up into heaven so that your doubts about heaven won't be denied. But trust the word of God. Trust the spirit that lives inside of you. It then will lead us to be able to declare our allegiance to God. Notice verse 28 and 29. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. He's able to see his hands. He's able to see his side. He stops doubting and he believes. In this verse, Thomas declares the greatest affirmation of deity. He affirms more than any other time by any of the disciples the deity of God, my God, and his submission to him, my Lord. This was a statement of total submission. I get it, God. I get it. And the question I have this morning for you is, what is keeping you from declaring your full allegiance to Jesus Christ? Give it to Christ. Say, Christ, I'm struggling with this. I don't know where to turn. Give it to him so that you, like Thomas, can stand up and say, you are my Lord, you are my God, I will do whatever you want me to do because I believe it to be true. Let me tell you something, when we take a deep look at Jesus and we focus in on his wounds and the power of his death and resurrection, we will see that, that the truth of who Christ is and all that he wants for us will be unfolded before us. And because of that, we will be given a new commitment to God. Some of us aren't serving God, aren't using our gifts for God because we have doubts. But never have you ever thought about stopping and giving those doubts to Jesus and allowing Jesus to deal with them and allow those doubts to fall away. Thomas has the luxury of seeing Jesus right before him. But notice what the text tells us who don't have that luxury. John 20, 30, and 31 tells us we are to devote ourselves to the word of God. The word of God. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. If you find yourself with doubts, become a student of this book. This evening, we are going to celebrate the change that this book has done in the life of our young people. And their key verse in Awana has been, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman who needeth not to be ashamed because he rightly divides the word of truth. 
You want to know that you can have, without a shadow of a doubt, the knowledge that Jesus is all that he says? Then study to show yourself approved. You want to know whether there's a God in heaven and that he died for your sins? Study to show yourself approved. You want to be able to stand strong in troubled times, knowing that God will never leave you nor forsake you? Then be one who studies to show themselves approved. Notice what he says. These things are written that you may believe. Not that you may wish, not that you may hope, but that you may believe. The way to belief in Jesus Christ is not through signs and wonders. It isn't through miraculous ideas and thoughts, but it is through the written word of God. Are you going to trust it, and are you going to obey what it says? We know that from history, this encounter with Jesus, this encounter with the risen Lord, would send Thomas on a journey to lead many in the Far East with the gospel of Jesus Christ. What doubts are keeping you from such a ministry? What is keeping you from following Christ with your full allegiance? Take it to Jesus Christ today in prayer. I'm going to ask that you would stand. I'm going to ask that you would close your eyes. And I'm going to close with not a prayer, but a song. And many of you know the song. I don't have the words on the screen, so I'm going to hope that many of you know this song. And I'm going to, I can't believe I'm going to do this, but I'm going to sing the verses. And then when it's time, as a prayer, I want you to sing the song that I learned in Sunday school as a reminder of what we are to do in our times of doubt. So let's sing this song together. When we walk with the Lord, In the light of his word, what glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still, and with all who will trust and obey. Trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Listen to these words. Not a shadow can rise, not a cloud in the skies, but his smile quickly drives it away. Not a doubt nor a fear, not a sigh nor a tear can abide while we trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. But we never can prove the delights of his love until all on the altar we lay. For the favor he shows and the joy he bestows are for them who will trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus 
but to trust and obey. Listen to these final words as we leave. Then in fellowship sweet, we will sit at his feet, or we'll walk by his side in the way. What he says we will do, where he sends we will go. Never fear, only trust and obey. Let's sing this together as our prayer. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Go in the grace of the Lord, not doubting, but trusting and obeying. God bless you all. You are dismissed.